You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, about a year ago, I moved into a new place over on the hill and uh, some of you have been there, but within a few days, I realized I had a pretty bad bug problem. Uh, these little bugs were swarming all around my house, uh, all around the outside, and so I went and I bought these little bug zappers, the, the, the purple type, and uh, I thought they'd do the trick. And so I set those little suckers up outside, and uh, for weeks, I heard nonstop electrocutions of these uh, little bugs, like non-stop zaps thousands of times every minute it felt like. And so as time went on, I started noticing that really wasn't doing the trick. And so I uh, went on Google and uh, typed in bug control and ended up calling a uh, bug control shop and uh, they send their guy over. And so uh, he, sprays, uh, he sprays for a bit and uh, I go outside and I chat with him for a little bit and uh, he says, okay, I sprayed, but you know the problem is actually next door. It's coming from your neighbor. And so we both look over, and it registers to me that my, my neighbor's whole uh, backyard and front yard is completely overgrown with weeds and with plants. It's like a, a jungle next door. And so uh, these bugs were essentially migrating over. Now, the problem is complicated, uh, and I know we have some, some new people here, but let's just say my neighbor works in the Senate, and uh, he's, uh, he's hard to get a hold of. And so some time goes on, and eventually I decide, I'm going to take this problem into my own hands. And so I get online, and I order some professional-grade, uh, high-grade insecticide, a product called Onslaught, which will be up on the screen. And the story is going to get pretty bad uh, from here on out, <laughs> so, uh, so hang on. So anyways, as the evening approaches, I get up on the roof, and uh, I put this stuff into this kind of pump spray can, and I aim the nozzle at my neighbor's uh, lawn. I got the high ground, and uh, I'm, about to, I'm about to exterminate all the bugs. And so as I start pushing the button, somehow this spray can just explodes in my face. Uh, pesticide all over me. Now, thank God, somehow... It didn't get in my eyes, but if you've ever got insecticide uh, on you, it burns. It burns really, really bad, like worse than, worse than pepper spray. And so for the next hour, uh, eight hours, I should say, I've never had pain like that before in my life. It was agony. I remember screaming into my pillow uh, in pain, and finally I fell asleep. And really, it took, it took two days to go away. Now, all that being said, that's all what you would call immense folly, immense stupidity, uh, both the idea of spraying it, which I don't think is uh, legal, as well as uh, living completely in the moment and not thinking. Thank God I can still see, but I was totally, totally dumb in that moment. Now, I mention all of that this morning because we are starting a new book in the Bible this morning, a famous book called the Book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is part of the biblical uh, wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, 
and Ecclesiastes. Psalms is really wisdom and emotions. Proverbs is wisdom and ethics. Song of Songs is wisdom and love. And Ecclesiastes is something completely different. I recently read a tweet from J.R.R. Jokin, which of course is a play on uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, and he tweeted this caption with this picture, which is really up on the screen. He says, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. It's the four books of the Bible that form the wisdom literature. And as you can see, Ecclesiastes is the odd sister. She's a little weird. She's a little gloomy. She's not too excited about the party. She's dressed in black. She's filled with pessimism. The cup is half empty. But she's a realist. She's so real, she's probably a buzzkill. So this is a weird book. But what we're going to see throughout our study and what we'll see this morning in the first few opening verses of this book is really the main idea for this morning and really the main idea of this book. And that main idea is going to be up on the screen, and it's this. Life has meaning in God. Life has meaning in God. Said another way, through Jesus Christ, life can make sense. Through relationship with God, life is not purposeless. It's meaningful. It's filled with purpose. Life can feel monotonous. It can feel meaningless. It can feel routine. But this morning, our lives can make sense when we find ourselves in him. When we join into his story and see who we are in his story, to see who he is in a real way. And we all need that. Now, my outline is also going to be up on the screen, and it's going to follow the text. It's pretty straightforward this morning. Number one, a cultured teacher, Ecclesiastes 1.1. Number two, a realistic view, Ecclesiastes 1, 2 through 11, and then finally, a better hope. This is all going to flow from the text. It's all going to, Lord willing, speak to our hearts, and it's all, Lord willing, going to impact our lives. Uh, if you would, join me again in prayer uh, as we dive into this book. Lord, we do thank you for the ability to uh, start a new book. Uh, we thank you for the ability to uh, think about what your word says. Uh, it is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces us. It cuts us. It exposes us before you in whom we will give an account. Lord, we pray for these uh, next coming weeks that you would uh, speak to us through this wonderful book, uh, that you would open our hearts to think about all that you are. Uh, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Ecclesiastes is not only a weird book, but it's a very tough book. Uh, it deals with the struggles of living in this broken world. And when we read it, it feels like it was written on a Monday morning. One scholar said, Ecclesiastes is a lot like an octopus. Just when you think you have all the tentacles under control, that is, you have understood the book, there is one waving about in the air. Uh, the book has some verses in it like these. Everything ends the same for everyone. The same fate awaits the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad. Now, that's not something you generally would hear in a church service. Or verses that give odd advice like this from Ecclesiastes 7. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. 
Why should you wear yourself out? <laughs> or verses with totally random advice, like Ecclesiastes 9, wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. Now that's helpful, perhaps if you're an intern particularly, but <laughs> is that really that important to be in the Bible? And then verse verses like this, but I really don't know what to do with uh, Ecclesiastes 10. Wine makes life happy, and money is the answer for everything. Yes, but, but no. Uh, and especially because we're in D.C., this is the verse I often sign Bibles with. Just kidding. It's, it's uh, not, not, politically, not politically correct, but uh, Ecclesiastes 7, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman <laughs> among them all. No more women's ministry. Uh, so it's a weird book, but it is a challenging book. And what we're going to see that not only is it a weird book and a challenging book, but it is a clarifying book. It's so real that people that even have never read the Bible, or perhaps you're not familiar with the Bible, you'll be able to easily key into this book, to easily identify with this book. Which means this morning, perhaps if you've been coming to church services or you've grown up in church all your life, this book has the potential to shake you. It has the potential to shake our neat and tidy view of God that fits on a bumper sticker. This book can wake us up. It can make us look at who God really is and to assess the world as it really is. Or perhaps that clarity, the real talk here, can shake us if you're one who doubts. This book can make us doubt our doubt. So Ecclesiastes, she comes to the party. She's a bit weird. She's a bit challenging. But she's so, so real. And some of us, when we get done with this book, this series, we're going to say, I've heard hundreds and hundreds of sermons in churches, but finally, somebody's telling the truth. So let's begin Ecclesiastes 1, my first point, a cultured teacher. The book begins, and the editor says in verse 1, the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the editor introduces Solomon, who he calls the teacher. And that's like the professor or the lecturer. Solomon is King David's son, and he has an appetite. He has an appetite for pleasure, for knowledge, for wisdom, for money, for power. He has it all, and yet we find that Solomon is still pretty empty. Now, this is important. I just want to point this out as we kind of uh, launch into this book. As we hear the words of this book, there's two human voices that speak to us in this book. The first voice is the voice of the teacher, and the teacher does the majority of the talking in Ecclesiastes, while the other voice is the voice of the editor who opens and closes this book. This ultimately is the editor's book. He's quoting the teacher or Solomon throughout the book. Now, the editor is likely the older version of Solomon, and the teacher is likely the younger version of Solomon. And so in the book, the editor is taking us down memory lane of what he discovered and what he experienced. Sometimes he adds comments, sometimes he agrees, sometimes he disagrees, and at the end, he gives a so what of the whole book. Think of this a little bit like a stage play. There's two people up on the stage. There's a younger Solomon who's doing the monologue with the spotlight on him. That's the teacher. But from time to time, that spotlight shifts over to an older Solomon who makes comments. 
he evaluates, he assesses. And that, of course, is the editor. Now, the perspective of the teacher that we'll see in the book of Ecclesiastes, the one who talks mostly throughout this entire book, is today what we would call a practical secularist. Now, a practical secularist is not an atheist. The word secular comes from a Latin word which means to be present. A practical secularist is basically somebody who says, yeah, there may be a God out there, maybe not, we don't know, but we have to find our comfort right here. We have to live in the present. We have to find our happiness here. We have to find our meaning right here in life. We have to make the best of life. The way this perspective, the practical secularist, is described in the book of Ecclesiastes is with this famous phrase, life under the sun. We've used that phrase to describe this sermon series. That phrase is going to pop up about 30 times, and it means a perspective on life without any reference to life above the sun or life beyond the sun. Life without reference to eternity, life without reference to God, life without reference to the heavens. In other words, it goes by the phrase, this life is all there is. And this is the perspective we're going to find in the book of Ecclesiastes. The teacher looks at death and he says, yes, humans and animals both die and they go to the same place. He says, the dead know nothing, but that's not what the rest of the Bible teaches. So he's viewing life from under the sun. He's viewing it from a purely secularist mindset. Now, this is what is so beautiful about this book. So many of us believe in God. We know Jesus, but we live our lives as practical secularists. And some of us are practical secularists. But the beauty of this book is that what we'll see, what we'll see fleshed out, is that it's only when we look over the sun, it's only when we look beyond the sun, when we look to things not of this earth, when we look to the things outside of us, to the reality of God, his plan, his promises, his work in the world, that everything begins to change, that things start to make sense. The spotlight shifts on the teacher, on Solomon, and he begins to talk. My second point, a realistic view. He's going to give us his life philosophy. He's had unlimited access to power, to knowledge, to wisdom, to pleasure, to travel, everything. Solomon's had it all. And he begins, and it's pretty hopeless. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the teacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You can just imagine the stage play with the light shining on him, and this is how the show begins. All is vanity. Another translation says, futility of futilities. Futility of futilities. Everything is futile. And another translation, meaninglessness. Everything is meaningless. Now, the word vanity here is a word that is related to vapor. Uh, the word vapor or the word cloud. And from his perspective, life under the sun, things like work and pleasure and relationships prove ultimately to be like a vapor. They prove to be like a cloud. The picture, of course, is like when you're flying and you look outside the window and you see the clouds 
And they look impressive. They look comfy. They look solid. But when you fly through it, there's nothing. It's full of nothing. He's essentially saying the same here about life. Things like work and pleasure and accomplishments, they look so solid and meaningful. They look so comfy. But Solomon says when you really press into it for meaning, there's not a lot there. You fall right through it. It's nothing. It's full of nothing. So he comes out of the gate strong. He's giving a brutally honest reflection of life under the sun. And some of us have felt this before, haven't we? We've felt the dark side of life, but we don't dwell on it, do we? We can't. He goes on and he brings up his first supporting argument for this statement that everything is vanity. And he says, my first supporting argument is the whole idea of work. Not just nine to five work, but friend work, yard work, relationship work, career work, marriage work, wedding work, baby work, church work, school work, housework, all types of work. He says in verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. So he asks a question. He says, what do you ultimately gain from all of your work? What's the point of it all? And the answer implied is nothing. He's saying, see, everything is vanity. And to support my point, think about toil and work. It's vanity. And in the next few verses, he paints a very bleak picture of the vanity of work. He really says three things. Number one, nothing we do really ever changes anything. Number two, nothing we do is ever really new. And number three, nothing we do is ever really remembered. Now try to hire somebody on that. (laughs) You got the job, but nothing you do here for the next 20 years is ever going to really make any ultimate changes in the world. And nothing you do is ever really going to actually be innovative. And when you retire in the grand scheme of things, you'll just be forgotten. It's gloomy. (laughs) It's very gloomy. But sadly, it's kind of true. It's life under the sun. In an ultimate sense, this is life if there is no God. And it's often what life feels like for all of us, whether we believe in God or not. And it's exactly exactly why we need new life in Christ, why we need to be connected to the transcendent, why we need to be connected to something outside of us, why we need relationship with God Almighty. First, he says, nothing we do really ever changes anything. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So Solomon says work or toil is vanity. It's vanity because nothing we do really ever changes anything according to Solomon. He points to the repetitive nature of life, and he really illustrates it with the basic elements of nature, the sun, the wind, and the water. Solomon says these forces, they seem to be busy, 
but their motion is filled with monotony. And that monotony goes on and on and on. He's kind of saying, too, that our work is like the work of the sun, the work of the wind, the work of the water. It seems to be busy, but it's just monotonous. It doesn't actually make a significant difference in the grand scheme of things. We think we're making a difference, but the earth remains and goes on. A generation goes, verse 4. A generation comes. The idea there is we're being replaced. The silent generation is replaced by the boomers. The boomers are replaced by Gen X. Gen X is replaced by the millennials. And God forbid the millennials are replaced by Gen Z. The point is, it's all just set. It's monotonous. It's repetitive. And it wears him out even thinking about it. He essentially says life is like Groundhog Day. We wake up, we do some stuff, we brush our teeth, we go to work, we have lunch, we do some stuff, we go to bed. We do it the same the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And sometimes we go to a party on the weekends, maybe a vacation, but it's all repetition. It's all monotonous. It makes no difference, says Solomon. So this is his first point. Gloomy, I know. Second, he says, nothing we do is ever really new. Verse 9 and 10. What has, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already, it has been already in the ages before us. Solomon says, life is vanity. Look at work. It's vanity. And he says it's vanity because nothing we do or toil for is ever really new. Now, some of us may read this or hear that and say, that's not true. Look at all the new technology. Look at all the new innovation. But Solomon's speaking in generalities here. And his point is that the fundamental aspects of life are not new today. A government is still a government. People still labor with their hands. We still make things out of the same basic raw materials. As to a business, a owner is still an owner. A manufacturer is still a manufacturer. Even landing on the moon is just a form of adventure and exploration. What Solomon's saying is that a new form of exploration won't satisfy. It's not new in a newly satisfying way. There's nothing new under the sun. This is his second point. And then third, he says, toil and work is vanity because in the end, nothing we do is ever remembered. Verse 11, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. In other words, today's celebrities are tomorrow's obituaries. Barely anyone remembers who the 51st Secretary of State was. Maybe there's an article out there somewhere. We don't remember our grandparents' grandparents. Even the giants in history are forgotten. Their existence essentially is just inferred from writings. So this is life viewed from under the sun. If this life is all there is, this is true. History testifies to that. If you peer deeply into the meaning of work and life from an under-the-sun perspective, philosophically, there's not a lot there. It's a cloud. It's vapor. And what Solomon is going to do is what most people do. He's going to turn to escapism. And we'll see that next week. He's going to turn to sports and to entertainment and to pleasure and to leisure. He's going to fill his mind with things that will keep him from thinking deeply about these big life questions. But as we read 
the rest of the pages of Ecclesiastes and the rest of the pages of the Bible, we find that we are directed to a greater hope, a higher hope, which leads us to the third and final point this morning, a better hope. Now, Ecclesiastes may end in chapter 12, but it's not the end of the Bible. Like any book in the Bible, we can't read it as if Jesus' feet never touched the earth. And when Jesus Christ comes to the earth, he said of himself, one who is greater than Solomon is now here. He said of himself, I have the words of eternal life. And in his life, in his death, Jesus goes to crush the greatest fear of the writer of Ecclesiastes' death through his own death and resurrection from the dead. So that salvation, knowing God, can be ours. As the Apostle Peter puts it, you were ransomed from the futile, the vanity, it's the same word, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That means there is a better hope than what practical secularism can bring us this morning. And we find it by looking to the king who reigns over the sun. We find it by looking to the God who controls the wind and the waves. And this morning, we can live happily under the sun by knowing the resurrected, the ruling, and the one day returning Son of God. That certainly doesn't mean we won't have disappointments and struggles in this life. It doesn't mean we won't feel the futility and the brokenness of this world. But it does mean life will make more sense in view of the reality of Jesus Christ. It means that life is worth living because of him. Life has joy in it because of him. Our labors are not in vain because of him. Jesus Christ is the amen to God's existence. His resurrection from the dead and how he changed the world is a yes to God's power and presence and how it can be in our lives. As one pastor said, at the end of the day, God's not given us an airtight philosophy of wisdom or ironclad guarantees of success. He has given us an airtight person to walk with and in whom we can hide during the ups and downs of life. Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, who never changes, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. On the cross, Jesus' work changed everything. He cried, it is finished, and his work has changed the world. And in his resurrection, Jesus' work makes all things new. He reconciles us to the Father. He made a new covenant with his blood. And Philippians says, he who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. The point is, there's a better hope. Many people want to try to gain this whole world, to have everything, but Solomon says it won't satisfy and he says it's all vanity. And Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What does it gain you if you get it all, but ultimately lose your soul? Believe in Jesus Christ this morning. He died for you. He died because of you. He loves you. He removes our transgressions. He blots out our iniquities. If you trust in him, he'll make you knew. Jesus talks back to Ecclesiastes with all the monotony, all the meaninglessness of Ecclesiastes, and he says, take heart, I have overcome this world. 
That means happiness and meaning and hope are found in your Creator through Jesus Christ, the only one who can satisfy our souls. And in Christ this morning, remember that our toil is not in vain. Even a cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus, it matters. The Apostle Paul says, through the resurrection, you can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know through the resurrection that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our labor is not in vain. Our work matters because Jesus is alive. Our work matters to Him. Our work dedicated to Him matters. He rose from the dead. And this morning, we have a great hope in Him knowing that one day we will too. Trust Him today. Joy is in Him. Life can make sense in Him. Believe on Him. He will change your heart. He will change your life. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC Podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.